we ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. I mean, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in a, the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. <laughs> Hello and welcome to No Such Thing as a Fish. This is a QI Elf podcast coming to you from our offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Shriver. I am sitting here with three other QI Elves, James Harkin, Anna Chizinski, and Andy Murray. And once again, we're huddled around our microphone, and these are the best facts that we found out from the last seven days. So in no particular order, here we go. Okay, fact number one, we're going to start with you, James. Okay, yep, my fact this week is a computer game has been invented that takes more than a lifetime to complete. Is it digitised Monopoly? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, because remember that thing we found? There was um, a computer simulation of Monopoly and they found that something like 12% of all games will go on indefinitely. Which is not true because... It's much more than that. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? So with Monopoly, how would it go on? Everyone would own a certain portion of the board and yeah. just keep going. Terry Pratchett has a computer game in his book, which is called Journey to Alpha Centauri, which takes over 3,000 years to play. And oh, wow. it's just, you know, the screensaver, the very old fashioned screensaver with just the moving dots for a spaceship? It's that with a counter counting down for 3,000 years. And at the end, a dot <laughs> appears in the middle of the screen and it says, Welcome to Alpha Centauri, now go home. And someone has actually made uh, that. It's yeah. a very rough game. <laughs> We're going to so find what, out about this uh, yeah, eternal this game. game. Yeah. Okay, um, I, this um, this came from the Design Museum. I went there this weekend. It's the Design of the Year 2014. Um, it's a competition for all the best design things, and this was the thing that I thought was most interesting. Um, but the idea is it's kind of an art installation, and they're asking questions like, what happens to digital things after you die? If you die halfway through that game, can you pass it on to another person to finish off the game? Is that possible? Or maybe this game is uh, designed for mobile phones. What happens when mobile phones are obsolete? Will the c- game carry on? Um, so they're asking those kind of questions. Wouldn't it be dispiriting to, you know, to find out that your great uncle had bequeathed you his high score so far in this game and that you just had to keep on playing it for the yeah. rest of your lifetime as well. Uh, to my first son, I leave all the property and to my second son, I leave this game. Hey, do you guys know um, how many hours of games are played per week on Earth by humans if you tallied up all the hours? I'll say 100 million hours. 100 million hours. Yeah, I would say I'm going to go for 2 billion. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go for just 24 hours. That's 24 hours. 24 hours. Yeah, and I think most of humanity is out on a walk. Okay. <laughs> the answer is three billion hours. Oh, so we yeah. I say I'm close, but actually I'm a billion out. Yeah. <laughs> Feels close. So gamers are supposed to be good at using uh, drones, aren't they, for war? Yeah. yeah. And also um, surgeons. Surgery. If, yeah, if they play computer games, it's supposed to help them with keyhole surgery and stuff like this. There's a lot of job opportunities coming up for gamers now, which didn't exist before. Um, when Robert Ballard discovered the wreck of the Titanic, probably in your head you have an image that he was in a submersible trawling yeah, through the ocean. But he, he was in a submarine, but they would send down drone submarines, as it were. Oh. And obviously you need someone to operate them. And this, this is a quote from him. He said, I would not let an adult drive my robot. They don't have enough gaming experience. Wow. So th- with this game, did you actually play it? Or? Uh, I, I prodded at the screen a few times, but I couldn't really work out how to play it. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why it takes lifetimes. The first lifetime is, <laughs> what the hell is this thing? <laughs> uh, just some of the other things that this design of the year, they had the first car that's been able to drive um, 100 kilometres on one litre of petrol. 
it looks really cool. It's a bit like a James Bond car. It's very sleek, and in order to um, help the um, aerodynamics, they don't have wing mirrors, and instead they have tiny cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, they had talking lamp posts. Is that useful? They were popular. Stop in- that! Stop that! Bad dog. <laughs> <laughs> they were um, in Bristol last year or the year before, I think. And the idea is that say you had a rubbish bin and it was full, then you would be able to talk to your rubbish bin and say. You're a bit full, and he got. Oh, sorry. I'll make sure I sort that out, and then it would get emptied. So it's a way of the community kind of dealing with stuff like that. Yes, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Um, There's this guy. Have you guys heard of Dmitry Itzkov? No. Um, So he set up this thing called the 2045 Initiative. Basically, he's a Russian mogul who um, thinks that we, he wants to remove our minds from our bodies, essentially, so our minds can live forever. Well, that's and never he, gone wrong in any film. <laughs> I think it seems very promising. Um, so by 2045, he really thinks that we'll have our minds decoupled from our bodies and he's going to live forever, and he's 100% certain of this, and we'll have holograms, and we'll be able to like shop in department stores for the body that we want, that most suits our purposes, um, and live for eternity. And he met the Dalai Lama to discuss it, who apparently was really supportive, according to their website. The um, thing is, at the moment, the computer capability isn't enough to simulate a human brain, is it? Yeah, 2045 seems um, ambitious. So I have something about things that run for longer than you'd expect, okay. because uh, off the back of the computer game. One of Norway's most popular recent TV shows has been a seven-hour train journey in real time Whoa. across Norway. Um, that might be quite beautiful, actually. Yeah, it was. And th- so they broadcasted it in 2009, and over 20% of the population tuned in at some point to the show. Well, in yeah. Britain, that would just be like 45 minutes of sat outside Milton Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched that. I've seen shots of the Norwegian one. It's gorgeous, rolling countryside, the snow and the furs, and it's all beautiful. And yeah, here it would not be so nice. <laughs> and they keep doing this. They've done 18 hours of fishing for salmon. Um, and then they had a 12-hour knitting night. Um, and my favourite is National Firewood Night, which was in February last year, which was inspired by a Norwegian book, Solid Wood, all about chopping, drying and stacking wood, which sold as many copies as Fifty Shades of Grey in Norway. And oh, the f- they're a different kind of people, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> um, and the first four hours of National Firewood Night was a discussion of firewood, and then the next eight hours was, shot, was a live fireplace being filmed for eight hours. And they had 60 complaints... Half were complaining that the bark had been put facing up, and the other half had been complaining <laughs> that it was put facing down. Happens <laughs> 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 all the people all the time. Just picking up on this idea of things that go on for an extended amount of time. There's so there's obviously the game where it takes a lifetime yeah. or more than a lifetime to play. Uh, there's a lot of musical pieces that do exactly that as well. John Cage famously oh, yeah. has a piece. Uh, it's called Organ Squared slash ASLSP. Uh, it's a musical piece um, which was written in 1987 for an organ. Uh, the piece itself lasts 20 to 70 minutes, um, but it's going to finish. It's going to go for about 639 years, ending in the year 2640. And people, you know, the next note is going to be played in a few years' time, and people will go and watch <laughs> that note be played in this continuing oh my piece. God. That sounds good. Do yeah, you think yeah. they use John Cage to teach, like, beginners piano? Because a lot of his pieces <laughs> are very easy, technically speaking. It's like, piece it's number one, don't play anything. Yeah, especially yeah. four minutes 33. Yeah. That's one of the yeah. easiest yeah. things to play. Well, there's, there's a lot of people who accidentally play a note during that four minute yeah. like, no no you've got it no, I see where you've gone wrong here you've um, classic mistake um. did you guys know this game called ESP and I don't know if this actually exists anymore I couldn't get the website to open but basically two people simultaneously like tag a picture with keywords and if you tag it with the same word then you get a point and that's how they tied a whole bunch of Google images 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I thought what you were you going to say is that people around the world are all playing this game and they're going to see if two people say the same thing at the same time and then see if there is actually ESP going on. I don't oh. think it counts as ESP if you're both shown a picture of a table and you both write table. table. <laughs> Call me Captain Skeptical. <laughs> 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 Fact number two, this one's my fact. The fact is that 2013 was the first year since 1933 that there hasn't been a sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. So there's huge worries in the Loch Ness Monster community because they think Nessie's dead. Or that she's just learned to be a bit more surreptitious. After hundreds of years of being constantly (laughs) spotted, if I just stay underwater... No, I think they're worried. I think because I think Nessie's a friendly animal, uh, doesn't Mm -hmm. mind being spotted. Do people like Nessie? Very much so. It's it's not an aggressive animal. It's never, in fact, in um, in 2005, there was a triathlon in Scotland uh, where all of the athletes <laughs> took a £1 million insurance deal out uh, in case of being attacked by the Loch Ness Monster when they were swimming across the loch. And uh, the, the community came out saying that's a ridiculous thing to do. If anything, she would join in. She would, she would, and she would beat them because she's a great swimmer. They're obviously saying that the Loch Ness Monster is friendly because she hasn't killed anyone in the last 70 years. But... There is a slight logic flaw there, isn't there? You're saying that maybe she only needs to eat once a century. No, I'm saying she doesn't exist. Every year, uh, William Hill, the bookies, they do an actual competition. It's a photo competition where they award money to the winner who's provided the best photographic evidence of Loch Ness Monster. And this is the first (laughs) year where they they had to disqualify all three entries. The first (laughs) one was obviously a duck. (laughs) The second one was a wave. And the third one, on closer inspection, uh, just wasn't even the loch. It was just another body of water. (laughs) So I have um, a theory of what's happened to to Nessie. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not my theory. This is the theory um, by Britain's High Priest of White Witches, Kevin Carleon. And he says, I personally believe Nessie is a ghost of a dinosaur who has been regularly seen in the loch. But the spirit of the creature has been so exploited in recent years, I decided to carry out an exorcism, hence no sightings of the monster. So he's saying that he has personally killed off Nessie. Yeah, he just thinks that he people have been Nessie. Yeah, people have been um, messing around with this spirit of a dinosaur and he wanted to set it free. I really like the mythical creatures that um, that we come up with. There are so many of them in Britain. I don't really know if other countries have them to the same extent. But uh, my favourite I came across in... Uh, I'm reading Our Mutual Friend at the moment and I've decided to read all of the footnotes. And if you're ever reading, I think Dickens especially, but like read all the footnotes. They're so interesting. One of them made reference to the dun cow. This um, vicious beast that was slain by Guy Earl of Warwick who was one of these like pre-medieval British heroes um, and yeah it was just this cow and it produced an everlasting supply of milk and eventually got annoyed that people were like milking it and milking it and milking it it ran away from its farm in Shropshire and eventually Guy Earl of Warwick who seems like a sort of St George of the 10th century went out and had to slay the cow yeah you say St George but slaying a cow is not quite as well, impressive exactly. as slaying a dragon is it? <laughs> although he did also slay a dragon which oh. was it must have seemed like a step down when <laughs> go on guys that's second monster syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to Warwick Castle, certainly until the 90s, I'm not sure if it's still there because I haven't seen it, you can see the rib of the dun cow wow. um, that the king ordered um, would should be like put in Warwick Castle. Is it big? Bigger they than a normal cow rib? Yes, it is bigger. They think that it's actually an elephant tusk. I mean, sceptics think that it might not be the rib of the giant dun cow. It That's might even be an cooler, though, tusk. if this was found in Gloucestershire in a field. Why is no... Uh, 
instead of saying, oh, it's a great, crazy, magical cow, why has <laughs> why this elephant been there? Maybe that's what they meant by a giant cow. Because well, you, you know that, you know that the initial uh, photo taken in 1933 of the Loch Ness Monster, the very famous photo, mm. they think that that's an elephant. No. In the just, lake. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Justify that. There was a circus <laughs> in town at the time. Elephants, as we've seen in David Attenborough documentaries, do go swimming. And when they yeah. do, they use their trunks as snorkels. And if you look at the photo, it looks exactly like an elephant trunk. Uh, do you guys remember that story in 2011 where police in Southampton uh, went on the alert because there was a tiger sighting in one of the fields? And then there was a gust of wind that blew it over and it was a cuddly toy. There was a lion scare in the 70s in Britain, which turned out to be a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, the details. There was a lion film. scare only last year that turned out to be a large cat. So, um, Anna, you were saying you're not sure if other countries have similar kind of monsters. Yeah, go on, enlighten me. So, I have, I have one or two here. So, um, the Lake Okanagan in Canada, they have a monster which is very similar to Nessie. And um, every year they give a $50 prize to anyone who can shout loud enough to wake the beast up. So everyone stands on the side of the lake, yells, wake up, wake up! And if anyone can wake them up, they get and like, $50. And they go home with the same $50, don't they? As <laughs> yeah. yet, no winners, I think. Isn't there a fact... You told me years ago, I seem to remember, that there was an animal similar to the Loch Ness Monster that had protection policy on it in a different country. Yeah, in Sweden, that was. Uh, it was the Storsjö monster, I think you pronounce it. And um, it was classified as an endangered species in the 80s or, or sometime like that. Yeah, because as a result of that, a direct result of that... Um, the Thatcher government uh, actually put the Loch Ness Monster on the animal protection. Oh, really? Yeah, they were going to do exactly really? the same. They were going to do what Sweden did, but they decided that that was one step too far. So they would they would just put it in. They were actually there was there was a, a document that was put in front of Thatcher or Thatcher's main people, which was they wanted to bring two blue-nosed dolphins over from America to search for the Loch Ness Monster. Really? Yeah, it, was, it never got passed, but it was, this was the Tory government. Uh, well, that, well, what would happen when the dolphins find... Mm. Is it like Flipper? They'll come back and go... I'd like to... <laughs> yeah. What's, that? What's that, Flipper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Hollywood people, what about Charlie Sheen? He went looking for the Loch Ness Monster. Did he? Dude, you year. know what? I, you know you're saying that there's this guy who exercised the ghost. Oh, yeah. that. So Charlie Sheen's getting a lot of stick from the um, Loch Ness Monster community. Is they think The Loch Ness Monster doesn't Wait, like two and a half the, men? Or? Maybe they want to binge over. together. <laughs> he went into the Loch Ness with a fishing hook. and, a, and he, he, t- he attached yeah, a yeah. leg of lamb to a fishing rod and tried yeah. to catch it on I, an old wooden boat. You know what? Call me Captain Skeptical, but I don't think that's any less sensible than trying to exorcise its ghost. Or look for it in the first place. Okay, uh, time for fact number three. This is your fact, Anna. Yeah. Um, So my fact is that the French government forced Madame Tussaud to make models of her friend's decapitated heads. Oh. Yeah. Poor old Madame. It's kind of like how her career started. They knew... Is that during the revolution? Oh, exactly, yeah. It was during the terror. And <laughs> the, the, the story goes that she actually had her head shaved and everything, and they were ready to um, decapitate her right. as well, because she was friends with the royal family, and she had like various mates in high places, and she'd made uh, wax models of a lot of them. And just before they, they dropped the guillotine, they were like, actually, you come in handy, because we want to make these death masks of our victims. And so she writes in her memoirs about having to sift through these piles of heads, decapitated heads, mm. um, pick them up, have them on her lap and making a making models of them yeah I, I read an account of it and I kind of got the impression that it turned into something she really enjoyed yeah I mean she had no choice but you, you know when you kind of just get used to something 
you know, it's your job. Yeah. You're, yeah. Now, you're now waxing heads yeah. for a living. It was like a treasure hunt, effectively. <laughs> Just going, my God, look, this is, this is the bloke who was in the paper last week. Isn't he Marie Antoinette's, like, I'm never coming on an this Easter is... egg hunt with you. <laughs> <laughs> No, if you just get used to it, you'll really enjoy it. Rashidi was was um, was Madame Tussauds the only wax work person at the time. I don't think so. I think she just made. Um, so it had been going on for hundreds of years. I think she was just very much a self-made woman. Well, my understanding of Madame Tussauds is that she was an apprentice to a doctor, yeah. and he would make um, wax um, bits of internal organs. Is that right? Oh yeah. He... Name, was his name Curtius? Yes, Curtius. But he, there's a theory that he may have been her father. Oh, yeah. really? Her biological father, yes. Oh, her, scandal! I know, her mother's husband was killed two months before she was, Madame Tussauds was born, um, but there is a theory that, that uh, he was her natural yeah. because father. Because I heard about this guy that he made most of his money making um, erotic wax miniatures. Oh is that true? Oh. I don't know. Oh, I didn't amazing. see that, really. Yeah, yeah. That cast kind of a, a, an odd light on him having this 15-year-old girl making wax models for him in his little office. <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. She was obviously talented, though. She was when she was sixteen, I think. She made uh, models of Rousseau and Voltaire. I love Voltaire because Voltaire uh, had a statistician friend uh, who figured out that this lottery that the French government was proposing um, as a way of it making money actually, um, if you bought up all the tickets of it, you were guaranteed to win more money than you'd spent buying the tickets. So Voltaire bought up all the tickets offered in this French lottery and um, became the equivalent of a millionaire today and never had to work again. I don't know if this is um, completely true, but uh, with Madame Tussauds these days, when they do a waxwork of someone, um, there's no contracts or anything. And technically, I think people could request for it to be taken away. They could say, I'm not, I don't want uh, to be done as a waxwork. But everyone just finds it such an honour that yeah. they're fine for it to be done yeah. I think you would wouldn't you some people put a few clauses with it so Tom Cruise and Mel Gibson have both said you um, you can do me and it's fine and people can take photos but no press are allowed to take photos of the wax oh, work because really? then what? they'll start using that uh, oh, as press shots and, and so they've said <laughs> you're not allowed good. to they're good but they're not that good yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom um, Cruise spotted again in Madame Tussauds waxwork music <laughs> he just loves that place. I find it very interesting who they pick who the pool of people is because yeah. now it's almost all celebrities although every monarch since George III has had a waxwork made of themselves so oh, yeah. okay. every uh, king or queen of England off the top of my head Ian Duncan Smith is the only leader of the Conservative Party not to have had a waxwork oh no will that's because he's it, the most likely isn't it well it takes a while as well to make the waxwork and he wasn't leader for very long <laughs> so I imagine by the time they'd book the appointments he was out do you know uh, Jenny Ryan who, who mm, yeah. uh, worked on QI a few years ago well um, she had to ring up um, Madame Tussauds for another reason to find out which was the um, most groped waxwork at Madame Tussauds and she found out that it was Brad Pitt and the way they found out is they work it out by um, which is the one that's taken in for maintenance the most right. often. Because presumably he would have had to have been taken in for maintenance constantly. They had Hitler in a glass box, didn't they? Because they were worried that he was going to be repeatedly attacked. Yeah. Well, and in fact, when, and then he was beheaded, in fact. Yeah, wasn't. someone ripped his head off. What, yeah. Was that before or after? Or when was that? 2008. Oh, 2008. It's not lunatic to have made one during the war, I suppose. I think yeah. he had his made in the 1930s, the first oh, one. Oh, really? Yeah, I think and then was made gradually they moved it from, you know, honoured place with other statesmen <laughs> to the ground floor to the Chamber of Horrors then eventually in the loo or something like that <laughs> there's, there's also um, there was a rumour going around that Gary Barlow was melted down into Britney Spears so yeah. she created <laughs> Spears wow. but it turned out that wasn't true he was taken away he was taken out after Take That had finished but he was brought back when Robbie Williams and Take That got back together mm. Um, but it meant that he's kept in a warehouse in the interim, and apparently there's a warehouse with all these 
Fallen Waxworks. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of it's like the uh, like That'd the end of Raiders amazing. of the Lost Ark. And I don't know who were in there. That I really is the stuff of out. nightmares. I really think. Imagine mm-hmm. being locked in that warehouse. It's overnight. just going to be all people from the eighties, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah, Vanilla Ice is in there. Yeah. And I read uh, as well that. Uh, some people are so enthusiastic about being turned into a waxwork that they just do as much as they can to help out with the authenticity of, oh, of yeah. it. And Boris Johnson, when oh. he was turned into a waxwork, he gave on the spot after they measured him the clothes that he was wearing. And he left naked. Oh, <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. That's, that was his excuse for why he was found wandering the streets of London <laughs> naked. <laughs> but if you visit Boris Johnson at Madame Two Swords, have a look at the bottom of his trousers because you'll notice that there's a, um, a rip, and that's a rip from a bike chain from when he was riding over to be measured. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so there's, there's a little What a PR rip. stunt. Yeah, Him and his I Love Cycling act. That is the best um, Cockney rhyming slang I've ever heard. PR stunt. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson is a complete a PR, PR stunt. stunt. Apparently, in the past five years, 123 pairs of false teeth and one false leg have been left behind in Madame Tussauds. One set of them. Who leaves their teeth? Yeah. I don't know. 123 pairs. Five years. It's a lot, isn't it? Um, one last fact yes. about waxworks and wax in general. Uh, it's possible to fire lasers at a fly's brain and make it have sex with a ball of wax. Not only possible, it's great fun. <laughs> <laughs> for the fly or for you? I suppose the fly, if the fly doesn't know that it's having sex with a ball of wax, so that we'll feel stupid afterwards. Yeah. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> Final fact of the show, um, and we come to you, Andy. My fact is that during the Normandy landings, the Allied forces dropped dogs by parachute onto oh, why the on battlefield. Earth would they do that? The, well, they, the UK deployed parachute dogs um, in the Second World War, which were used to identify minefields and to keep watch and to warn of enemies. Yeah, you know when you say identify minefields, does that basically mean wander over a minefield? <laughs> <laughs> They were sniffer, sniffer dogs. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, they, they could smell them. And they, so, yeah, there were three, uh, initially just three sent over uh, Brian, Monty, and Rene. And Rene, I think, was the only female parachutist in the British Army during the war. And they were sent in with the 13th Lancashire Paris. And then one of the articles I read it said they were called Paradogs, brackets, short for parachuting dogs. <laughs> which I love. Um, but the, the War Office have made radio appeals in 1941 for people to give up their dogs for the war movement. And basically, lots of people used it as an opportunity to just get rid of their dogs. Oh. So they, they had thousands sent in, and lots of them weren't suitable. Yeah. So were they trained to like pull the parachute cord at the right time? Or? I think the parachutes opened automatically. Okay. And they were, because they were the right uh, shape and size, they, they, they were given the same parachutes that the paratroopers used to drop bicycles over the battlefield whoa, whoa, whoa. which they all <laughs> sorry Andy are you saying a dog is the same shape as a bicycle and size and you can <laughs> if you pedal it right they're the same effect <laughs> that's a very good point um, yeah. the first training was to jump out of the plane with a bit of meat in your pocket <laughs> and then the I think just and then I think for someone else to throw the dog out of the plane no no, no I, it's, it's actually slightly crueler than that they used to starve the dogs um, and oh, so really? what they would do is they would hold the meat outside the plane so the dogs <laughs> no. would leave for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How else are you going to get a dog out other than throwing it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. But they're not cruel. I think, <laughs> I think eventually they got 
used to it, though, didn't they? But you do get used to it, though. I watched, remember watching a really interesting documentary a while back about, um, I think it was 12 paratroopers from the Second World War, who they did their first parachute jump and they were obviously terrified, as you are when you throw yourself out of a plane for the first time. Really, really nervous. And then, obviously, they did it for the subsequent five years, got really used to it, not scared at all, didn't parachute for 50 years. And this documentary picked up on them when they were in their 70s and 80s and said, do you want to do a parachute jump again? Let's see how it is. And after 50 years, not a trace of fear in them. And it's like this thing where the way to get over a phobia permanently is to do it repeatedly and you're cured for life so 50 years they didn't parachute and they all just blase up in the plane when you're you're looking for illustrious decapitated heads you get used to it it. so I have something else about people dropping stuff by parachute during the war Um, during Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia um, they dropped sheep and bulls by parachute and the reason was um, they needed food they were in the desert and what's the best way of doing it you can drop meat down that's fair enough or you can drop live animals and then they can butcher them themselves whenever they need the meat and so that's what they did they dropped their bulls and the sheep they um, attached them to modified harnesses and parachuted them down to the soldiers that is amazing wow yeah that must be the biggest thing that's ever been parachuted a bull I read that in parachutes actually during war times um, people as well as you know you'd look out for it because of enemy but you would also uh, be looking out for it because parachutes the, the material was such a collectible it was, oh, it was a thing that everyone right. yeah yeah like apparently if it was a silk one that yeah. would be they come in little triangles and you would turn them into underwear like um, otherwise they had no underwear oh, it's like a new meaning to going commando <laughs> <laughs> I love have you guys seen the footage of Franz oh yeah Rachel yeah were you mm. watching that poor guy who um, developed a parachute suit I think starting in 1910 and I just love the fact that he so he made this parachute suit which he decided was going to be um, useful, effective and work and it just didn't work consistently didn't and he threw various dummies wearing it off from various heights and they all just plummeted to the ground and died a dummy death and then he tried to throw himself off very like 10 metres high yeah. sort of levels um, fell, broke his leg and so he thought well this has gone well I'm going to ask if I can throw myself off the Eiffel Tower wearing it um, and so yeah he did and died and, and you died. can watch it you can watch it on YouTube it's an extraordinary bit of footage that's amazing I didn't realise that it had gone so badly before he decided to jump off the yeah. Eiffel Tower just to, gi- just to give him the benefit of the doubt isn't, did he jump off the viewing platform at the Eiffel Tower yeah Cause some take, and that's quite low isn't it yep but it's I not wouldn't high be enough. surprised if Maybe if he'd jumped from higher, it might have worked. That was what some people said. Some people claim that his parach- it looked like his parachute suit suddenly bl- blossomed at the last moment, the last split wow. second, but I actually can't. Oh. I've watched the footage. That before. sounds like um, a wily coyote and roadrunner thing, doesn't it? <laughs> when he's, he splats down and then the parachute opens yeah. just as he lands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had the most amazing moustache, though. I wondered why the moustache didn't save him with the no. air resistance. It's so good. One of my favourite facts about D-Day um, landings is that Four percent of the sand on the beach today in Normandy is made up of tiny metal particles left over from artillery explosions during the attack. No, four yeah. percent. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Did you guys read that in the year two thousand, someone tried to replicate Leonardo da Vinci's, who was one of the first people to design a parachute? Oh yeah, he? it was like a triangular one, was it? Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was. A, it was a bunch of triangles, and anyway, it definitely had wood involved. So in his design, it was like some sort of cloth and wooden. Um, things holding it together, wooden planks holding it together. So someone tried to recreate this in the year 2000, but used modern materials and said it worked. And it was this, like, it was all over the news saying, you know, Da Da Vinci's design works, this guy survived. But he used cloth and 
modern materials. I feel yeah. like if you built a parachute out of wood, it would never have worked, would it? I don't think it would work. Never, never. Yeah. Have worked. Um, I had to, the official, I guess, first parachute jump, as far as we know, the first public one. So it was done by uh, Louis Sebastian Lenormand in Montpellier in France, and his Ooh. very first jump was off a tree holding two umbrellas. Cool. That was the very first parachute jump. So do we not count um, the Malmesbury monk, Aylmer of Malmesbury, um, who was the 11th century monk who flew 200 metres when he jumped off the top of Malmesbury Ab- Abbey? He was airborne for 15 seconds, they've worked out, because they know where he landed and where he took off from and wow. how high it was. And he just made a, a bunch of wings for himself on his feet and wow. his hands. And he said if he'd remembered to make himself a tail, then he would have, <laughs> he would have been unharmed. And that actually seems to be true, because it like, gives you an equilibrium and means that... You're giving me bad a really wo- skeptical look, Captain Skeptical eyes. I think that sounds very true. And people would have thought him a fool when he did that. And yet, a few hundred years later, we are throwing dogs out of planes <laughs> to help identify mines. Still doing it. 2010, uh, German shepherds were being flown in yeah. and dropped over Taliban regions. Yeah. Good. To spy on the Taliban. <laughs> to spy. Yeah. Nice. They had little cameras on them. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. German shepherds. I, I like the idea. I like the fact that in the war it was German shepherds that the British were dropping on Germany. I mean, the Nazis must <laughs> yeah. have thought, you traitors. <laughs> <laughs> that reminded me that there's always um, countries that find an animal and then arrest it for spying. That happens all the time, <laughs> oh, yeah. doesn't it? Yes. Uh, was it Saudi Arabia, or I'm making this up, Saudi Arabia that um, arrested a coconut for spying? <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I remember that. I can't remember. Oh, I might have made that up. I don't know. I think that's no. amazing. No. Uh, I find you guilty of spying. You are to be broken up and put in cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> there was a bounty on his head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all that there is for this week. Those are our facts. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by going to our Twitter handles. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? I am at Eggshaped. Anna is still not on Twitter, but do you know what? Let's get you on this week. Uh, otherwise, you can get Anna in the meantime on at Quikipedia. Um, please do go, if you enjoyed this podcast, to our qi.com slash podcast page. Anna and Alex have been putting together these amazing pages. They have all the links to the stuff that we're talking about, videos that go with what we're talking about. It's a great page. Go to it. Um, and we'll see you again next week. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you again. Bye. Bye.